Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Great to see everybody again. We are going to jump into God's Word, and we are in the middle of a series here at FC. It's called The Wisest Man That Never Was. The wisest man that never was, and of course we're talking about Solomon, and we're focusing on this idea of wisdom. Uh, for those of you that were here last Sunday, Pastor Justin shared, and he was passing out Reese's Pieces uh, cups. Anybody remember that? Yeah? How do you follow that as the uh, guest speaker, right? It's like, do you come with a bag of Kit Kats, or Justin already established that um, musketeers are like the worst candy bar on planet earth, right? So I'm like, oh, well, all you've got today is me and God's word. So hopefully that's enough because I wasn't going to uh, bribe anybody with a better candy bar. But uh, we are grateful for you guys. And Pastor Justin already gave the update two, three weeks ago. A new church uh, went in uh, in the area of Encuroto. And then just this week, and I'll shoot him some pictures and he can talk more about it. A new church was completed in Incaintec, and then next week, another church is going in in Olcuroto. So, come on. I mean, that's exciting. Three churches in one month. I mean, that's, that's remarkable what God's doing. We are headed back that way on Tuesday, so we covet your prayers as we are traveling. The world is definitely a different place with travel right now, so as much prayer as we can get, we will take it. Amen. Uh, we are going to Proverbs chapter 4. And we are going to read three verses that will set the context of the direction of this uh, message today. The title that I have given it is The Cost of Not Guarding Your Heart. The Cost of Not Guarding Your Heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. The Word of God says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and health to one's whole body. Now notice verse 23, because this is really where we want to camp out and focus on this morning. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Some translations say flows out of it. So we all know that King Solomon is reputed to be one of the wisest men who ever lived. So the story, the joke is told that two women run into the court of King Solomon fighting. My daughter was to marry this man, but this woman claims that the man was to marry her daughter, one of the women yelled. There is a simple solution, said the wise king. I shall cut the man in two, and each of your daughters can have a piece. Fine by me, said the first woman. No, don't. I would rather let the other girl marry him than that, cried the second woman. The king didn't hesitate for a minute. Fine, he said. The first woman may have him. What? protested the other. She wanted him cut in two. Indeed, said the king. She shows the true spirit of a mother-in-law. 
For all the mother-in-laws in the room today, please forgive me. I know that was a low blow. If my mother-in-law is watching online, I love you, Mary, I promise. Um, much could be said about King Solomon's wisdom, right? That's why I think we have a whole series detailing this idea here. But King Solomon and his wisdom are legendary. It's interesting within the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, there are multiple words for wisdom, but the one that occurs the most, used several hundred times, is this Hebrew word shokma, right? Shokma. And it means skill or ability, and when you place it within the context of the book of Proverbs, it's going to speak to us about skill or ability in living life God's way, okay? Skill or ability in living life God's way. Way. Now, I like to look at this idea of wisdom in the Old Testament, and I like to correlate it to the New Testament idea and concept of discipleship. When we come to know Christ, when we surrender our lives to Him, it's not just that we are entering into a one-time salvation experience, it's that the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is inviting us into a completely way of doing life. It's a completely way of think, different way of thinking. It's a different way of, of engaging with the world around us. And so when we talk about wisdom and when we talk about this idea here of discipleship, it's interesting that Paul is going to identify for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He says this about Christ. He says, Christ is the power of God, but he's also the wisdom of God. So there's this parallel that pops out of Scripture really quick between wisdom in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, we don't just have an abstract philosophical concept of what wisdom may entail, but rather now we understand that wisdom is a person. We understand that wisdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ to teach us how to live life on God's terms to how to engage with the way that God wants our lives to reflect His beauty and His glory in the world around us. Proverbs 4.23 is a very precious verse to me. Many of you know I grew up in Africa. I've lived in Africa, you know, most of my life. I was born there. And my dad was a Bible school teacher in Kenya. And he used to have this plaque that would hang above his office when you would walk in. And it was ginormous. You couldn't miss it. As soon as the door would open, there was Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. And I think what Solomon is trying to tell us is that there's this direct correlation between wisdom and the intricacies of a person's heart, the intricacies of a person's life. And he's giving us a clue here in this passage, and he's saying that wisdom isn't really a matter of the brain. Wisdom is a matter of the heart, right? And I think we can prove this really easily because you and I both know some really, really smart wise people whose lives are total train wrecks, right? So wisdom at some point is so much more than just cerebral capacity. Wisdom looks like practicality. Wisdom looks like implementing the Word of God in our lives. Wisdom looks like learning how to take steps in agreement, in alignment with the path that God has called us to walk this life out with. Now, when we talk about discipleship and when we talk about following Christ, I think sometimes we've done a disservice in the body of Christ because we associate discipleship with this idea of a heavy cost 
or there's a heavy price to be paid. Like, if you're going to give your life to Jesus, you better make sure that you're willing to pay the price because God might call you to go to Africa or God might call you to go to, I don't know, whatever it is, right? And for me, I'm always like, but Africa's my home. I love Africa. Jesus, call me to Africa, right? And I think that if you're not careful, you can become so focused on the quote-unquote cost of discipleship, the quote-unquote cost of implementing wisdom, that you forget the non-cost of discipleship. Now, listen to what James Smith says. He's a prolific uh, author on multiple subjects of New uh, Testament-wise, but he says, instead of focusing on the cost of discipleship, I think we should stress how bankrupt non-discipleship is. In other words, it's not just that it costs a lot to follow Jesus, it costs way more not to follow Jesus. It's not just that it may, there may be a price to pay if you pick up your cross and follow Jesus. It's that if you don't pick up your cross and follow Jesus, the cost that you will pay is astronomically more intense than if you didn't, right? Dallas Willard, who's a, another author who writes a lot about discipleship, says this, um, in short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said that he came to bring. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. So think about this idea this morning of non-discipleship, the cost of non-discipleship, and correlate that to what we just read in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. And I'd like to talk to you just for a few moments here about this idea of the cost of not guarding your heart. Solomon says, hey, you need to guard your heart because out of it, that's where all of life flows. That's where the issues of life emanate. That's where they develop. That's where, you know, they start to uh, be manifest and evident. And so when we look at Solomon last week, Pastor Justin said, we're going to talk about the positive side of Solomon. This week and the next two weeks, we're talking about the negative side of Solomon. And I think that, unfortunately, Solomon is one of these guys that it is a train wreck as you begin to pull back and peel back the pages of Scripture, you recognize very quickly that he paid a terrible price for not implementing wisdom in his life. And so in order to do that, I'd like to talk about three costs. There's probably many other costs that you could talk about, but three costs of not guarding your heart. And I want to connect these three thoughts to an aspect of Solomon's name, all right? An aspect of Solomon's name. And this may be kind of cheesy, but those of you that hung out with me know that I'm cheesy, so it's my message and I get to preach it any way that I want to. When you get invited to preach on Solomon, you can do whatever you want to do with it, but this is how I'm doing it today, all right? So um, Solomon, the solo man, all right? Solomon, the solo man. Uh, When I was at ORU, it was awesome because we had people from all over the world and there were several people from the Bahamas and the Caribbean that lived on our floor. And one of the other guys was from Nigeria and his name was Solomon, and so the um, Caribbeans and the Bahamians would go, Solomon, how are you, Solomon, right? And I was just going to hear that in the back of my mind, right? And so Solomon, the solo man, and this is the cost of isolation, the cost of isolation. Notice in verse 20 here, Solomon is writing, and he says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Now, 
If you're going to study the book of Proverbs, you probably need to know that this is going to be a repeated expression that you're going to find multiple times throughout the pages of Scripture. It's at least eight or nine times Solomon is going to set this up with this idea of a father figure and a son or a mother figure and children, and there's some kind of transmission taking place between these are the principles that God wants you to know, and if you're going to know them, they have to be transmitted or communicated to another generation in such a way that I think Scripture is giving us a picture of community, okay? A picture of community. Let's look at uh, one example here from just earlier in this chapter, chapter 4. Solomon's, of course, writing, and he says, Hear, my children, the instructions of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. Now, notice this next part is really interesting. When I was my father's son... Okay, what do we know about King Solomon? Who was King Solomon's father? Well, we know that it was David, right? And so David is in Scripture reputed to be a man after God's own heart. Despite some major uh, moral failures in his life, he continued to press in. And Solomon describes what took place in his home when he was a little boy. Or maybe he was a teenager. But at some point, there's this picture where Solomon says, I was tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. Who's his mother? We know that's Bathsheba, right? Um, And he says, they also taught me and they said to me, let your heart, notice that again, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Now, I love how Solomon is describing the role of other people speaking into his life. I was thinking back to growing up in Kenya. Uh, Oftentimes the power would go out for uh, two, three days at a time. And I just remember at night, whenever the power was out, uh, I just have this memory etched in my mind of dad opening up the Bible. It'd be like eight o'clock at night. And I remember dad would, you know, have like a candle over top of the Bible and he'd be reading passages of scripture. And my brother and I usually would fall asleep at some point just because, you know, you're tired, the day's over. And then I remember mom would wake us up and we'd pray together as a family. And then we would sing a couple songs. And I think if you're looking deliberately at what what this passage is speaking, I think you could preach a whole message on the importance of parents transmitting the Word of God to their children. And I think so much of times what we've done in this culture is we've put the pressure on the church to raise our kids instead of the pressure, as Scripture places it, upon the role of the parent to transmit and communicate God's Word and God's truth into the next generation, all right? But what struck me about this is that it's like Solomon's having this memory. He's thinking back to when he's growing up. He remembers dad, King David. He remembers Bathsheba. He remembers them sharing God's Word into his life, and it's like this sweet and special and precious moment in his life. But then if you fast forward the story for like the rest of the 40, 50 years that this man's going to live, and if you study Second Chronicles, and if you look through First Kings, the passages that detail Solomon's life, at no other point are you going to find another individual who pours into Solomon's life. In other words, it's almost like this picture of isolation, this picture of loneliness. Even though he was surrounded in his courtroom and people came from all over the world to hear his wisdom, it was like he had no one pouring back into him. He had no relationship with other people. And it's it's interesting because when you look at David, King David, his father, there's the prophet Nathan who regularly challenged him, who regularly corrected him, who regularly spoke God's word into his life. And then if you go back a generation before, 
before that, the first king of Israel, you have King Saul, and Scripture records the prophet Samuel who did the same for him and poured into his life and challenged this man and tried to keep him, you know, walking on God's pathway. And very quickly, you discover that Solomon was truly the solo man. Like, he's cut off. He's by himself. He's in isolation. There's no accountability. There's no encouragement. There's no friendships. There's no real relationship. And it reminds me so much that when, when, when we talk about this idea of a solo man, from, from a distance, you get this picture of Solomon. You're like, wow, the wisest man who ever lived. But you get close and you realize right away that the inner workings of his life are a shambles, right? An absolute shambles. And it reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where uh, the Word of God says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. Um, in June, uh, I think no, it was actually July, th- those of you that have been with us to Africa, you know that where these churches are going in, it's, it's the middle of wild Africa. I mean, it is Maasai land. There, some of the churches, they still have to drive away the elephants on Sunday morning before people can go into the building. I mean, it is in the middle of nowhere. So without trying, just going from church to church, you're going to see animals sometimes, and you can't predict it because it's the wild. And so this one morning, we're out driving, and we see nine lionesses, and they're just kind of walking through the grass. And it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And they all looked hungry. And so we're like, we're going to follow them for a little while. And so we follow them for about an hour. At, the, at some point, we look down, and the, the lionesses are on the edge of this, um, like a cliff kind of area. And they're looking down into a valley beneath. And they're all staring really, really intently. And so Bailey and I are trying to figure out what they're looking at. And there's this solo bull... Uh, buffalo, a huge old buffalo down in the uh, valley, and he's chomping away, you know, eating his grass, and he's oblivious to the world around him. He's just loving being out there by himself, and without any noise, without any communication, well, I guess there's some kind of communication, without any verbal noise, these lionesses just divide. And slowly we watched over the next 30 minutes as these lionesses literally surrounded this buffalo from every side, and he had no clue what was happening. And when they got within 200 yards, they begin to get down low, and then they do the, you know, the crouch thing. And we're watching this, and I was like, Bailey, we're going to, this buffalo's toast. Like, he's, he's not going to make it. And it's, and every, I mean, the suspense is so thick, you can cut it with a knife. And then at some point, one of the lionesses must have hit a twig or something, because all of a sudden, his snout had been down, like chowing on the grass or whatever. And then he starts to snort, and he looks around, and you're like, whoa, what, what, he must have seen it, and then he takes off. And as he takes off, the lionesses hadn't completely encircled him yet, but one lioness jumps on his back, another lioness goes for the throat, and obviously for a big bull, I mean, it's going to take four lionesses to bring this guy down, and only two of them got on there, and he was able to shake them off. But man, as I watched that unfold, I thought, what a picture of what Scripture describes. The danger of isolation that so often we cut ourselves off, and particularly in a season like COVID, oh my goodness, where you have isolation and disconnection and detachment, and I get that there's very real health concerns, and I'm not here to minimize or mitigate any of that thing stuff, but I'm here to say at some point, if we're not deliberate to stay connected to other people in our life who know God, who walk with Christ, who are a, sounds, a, bo- a sounding board and a solid voice to speak truth to us, we're no different than that buffalo. Oblivious and impervious to the fact that the enemy of our souls, the devil, has a very real plan to try and take us out, right? And I love the picture from Scripture of the Trinity. And 
I can't, they don't pretend to understand the mystery of the Trinity, but it's so beautiful to me that you have three, yet one. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're in perfect unity, and the unity is a perfect community. And so you see, even before humanity is created, you have this glorious picture of God in community with himself, so that when he creates humanity, and when he sends his Son to reveal his perfect purpose and this path called wisdom, his Son is in perfect community with the Father, and then the Spirit comes upon him. And I think it's this reminder to each of us that you were not called to live life alone. You were called to walk in fellowship with other believers. And I think that this brings up an important point because so often the danger is that I've heard people, well, you know, the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And I want to say, you know what? We are all hypocrites at times. But that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of entering into a place of community together where you have your imperfections and your faults and you and I have mine and we bring them together and we submit them to the cross and we say, Father, would you make us more like your son Jesus, right? And that's this beautiful idea here of walking in community, right? So, solo man, right? Solomon, the solo man. You guys tracked with me on that one, right? You got that one? Okay, good. All right, the second one, and this one's even more cheesy, but um, Solomon, the solo man, all right? And you're like, what's the difference? So look at the screen. You'll get it here in a second, all right? Solomon, the solo man, all right? The solo man. And yes, I did come up with this stuff with myself. That's how come you know that there's no one else who would have preached this, right? (laughs) So this is the cost of spiritual compromise, the cost of spiritual compromise, right? So we talked about the cost of isolation, but let's maybe look at the cost of spiritual compromise just for a moment. Um, this passage here in Proverbs chapter 4 really messes me up, and I, I, I think the reason it messes me up so much is because Solomon's the wisest man who ever lived, and yet when he tells us, hey, above all else, guard your heart, we know that by the end of the story, he does the exact opposite, right? And I think that that is such a painful, painful lesson um, when you study Scripture and it's so important that we understand that our hearts are the source of every aspect of life. And so when he says, above all else, guard your heart, it reminds me of John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So in Jesus, there's life. We know that Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. And Solomon here is talking about how the importance of the heart is where the life, where your life flows. And so it's this picture to me of Christ is our life source and Christ comes and interacts and encounters us in our heart. And as our hearts remain pure and tender and right before God, then that same life, not my life, but his life is able to flow through my life so that other lives around me encounter his life, right? And so Solomon's talking about the importance of making sure that your heart is right, that your heart is this receptacle, this reservoir that's able to receive and interact with the life that Jesus has come to release and, 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 and reveal in all of us, right? And I just shake my head sometimes because I'm just as guilty, I think, as Solomon where you like, bro, you knew what to do, but you didn't do it. And Pastor Justin had a brilliant message last week about the importance of putting wisdom into application. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it if you hadn't. But just maybe listen to one verse here that's going to illustrate what happened in Solomon's life, the so low man. And I'll explain that here more in a second. But it says this in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. 
And Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away, say that word with me, his, his wives turned away his heart. Is that not in the scripture? Oh, his wife led him astray. Sorry, I used the wrong uh, translation. That's my bad. Um, one, the translation that I'm looking at says, and his wives turned away his heart. Right? His wives turned away his heart. Now think about that back to Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. And then here it's this idea that his heart has been turned away. And I look at that and I'm like, how in the world could this happen? This, 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 this verse almost seems over the top. Like, I've been married coming up on nine months, or nine years, sorry, I don't want to say nine months, nine years, <laughs> next month, I'm in so much trouble right now, I should probably stop, but I've been married, yes, nine years, next month, and I'm going to just, you know, be honest and say one wife is a lot, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a lot, my wife is awesome, I love her deeply, but it's not, the, marriage is not, is not for the faint of heart, I'm talking biblical marriage where you are legitimately engaged in, in, in marriage is the crucible that God uses to make you more like Christ, like marriage can be, marriage can be a lot, right, and so I look at Solomon's life and I just want to shake my head and be like, you had how many wives, bro, like what, and how do you get to that place? I mean, how do you move from one wife to 700 wives? Like, this doesn't happen overnight, right? And I think that this begins to paint the picture for us of what compromise looks like. It's this slippery slope where it doesn't just happen overnight. It happens incrementally. It happens with our convictions beginning to slip. It happens with poor decisions that we start to make in one particular area that then begin to snowball, right? And so you have this effect where things amplify the further you go. And so I look at Solomon's life, and I'm like, wow, he started with one wife. And then it was, well, maybe I'll just get a second wife. And then once you've got the second wife, eh, two's not that bad. So maybe I just get three, and then, you know, maybe you get four, and then 10, and then 20, and then 50, and then 100. And then at some point, the author of the book of Kings puts this verse in our Bible that's just mind-blowing, and yeah, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And they turned away his heart. And so it's this idea here that compromise when left unchecked accomplishes the exact opposite of what um, Solomon describes in Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. Yeah, except Solomon, the solo man, didn't do it, right? And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, he just started to lower the bar. And every time you start to lower the bar in your life on the convictions and the discipleship process that God's called you to, it's going to be that much easier to lower it the next time. So he's the solo man because he just kept lowering the bars lower and lower, and lower, until at some point, his heart no longer belongs to God. Many of you know that you have been helping us with water projects in uh, the Mara area. I think Pastor Justin probably told a little bit about this story in uh, March and April, but there's a community called Inquilale. FC, you helped us put a church in there. You helped us put a school in there. And now we have a water project there because it's one of the driest places in the Mara region. It's very difficult to get rain. Um, and when you do get rain, the water quickly evaporates and quickly is absorbed by the soil. And so we were able to put in a half-inch pipe that connects to another half-inch pipe that is the main water supply and water source for this entire area. And the pipe goes all the way up into some hills, which are about five, six, seven, eight miles away, and the water flows down from this beautiful spring 
area all the way to the village called Nkwalale, and everyone on the plains below is able to get the water, provided that the flow keeps happening with the water. Well, one day, I guess it was in May, June, somewhere in that time frame, we were visiting Pastor Elijah, the pastor of Nkwalale in the church there, and he told us, no more water. And we're like, what happened to the water? He's like, well, we you know, the stopped coming from the pipe. And so we sent a team to investigate and no one in the entire area had water. And so that team, you know, grew to more people and they went up to where the springs are at and they found a herd of elephants. And if you've ever watched elephants drinking water, I mean, it is awesome. I mean, magnificent. One of the most enjoyable. I mean, there's a and the trunk's going here and water's there. And, but they're also, you know, gentle giants, but they can't really identify a half-inch uh, pipe. And so one of the elephants just went like that. And of course, when you're, what, two tons of weight, I mean, that thing just shattered. And so the water's still trying to flow, but it's And there's no longer this steady stream of life giving water able to reach the village below. And when I heard that story this summer, I thought, man, that is such a picture of what happens as it relates to this idea of compromise. Solomon says, above all else, guard your heart. Why? Because it's the, it's the pipe, it's the tube, it's, the, it's, the, it, it's where the, all of the life flows into every other area of your life. So I take that to mean if there's areas in your life where you aren't experiencing his life, then you probably need to go back to the source, back to the reservoir. And Solomon says that reservoir is your heart. That's your emotions, that's your attitudes, that's your value systems, that's your convictions, that's the people that you're hanging out with. And you need to begin to do some serious soul searching and say, could it be that some spiritual elephants, sorry to use a corny analogy, but some spiritual elephants have been walking through your heart going and trampling this thing to nothing so that there's no longer the flow happening in your life. Um, I think that as it relates to compromise, this is a process that someone said it looks like this. You sow a thought, then the thought becomes an action. You sow an action, that becomes a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character, you reap a destiny. Right? And it's just this simple reminder that I've never met somebody on drugs who woke up one morning and just said, you know what, I, today I'm going to go and you know, waste my life away doing drugs. Or I never met an alcoholic who said, I'm just going to go drink into a... No, it starts with one drink. It starts with one joint. I've never met someone who walked away from their wife in an adulterous relationship who just woke up one morning and was like, I'm done. I'm going to go be King Solomon and have 700 women. That's, that's not usually how it happens, right? There's usually this, 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 this progression that takes place, right? Um, the story's told of Winston Churchill in World War II, and he's engaging with one of his political adversaries, a lady who was very powerful in Parliament. And I have no idea if this story is true, but multiple sources say that he said this. He asked the woman, and he said, Madam, would you sleep with me for five million pounds? The woman responded, my goodness, Mr. Churchill, well, I suppose we would have to discuss the terms of conditions, of course, but I might be open to the proposition. To which Churchill asked a follow-up question and said, well, madam, would you sleep with me for five pounds? And the woman responded, Mr. Churchill, what kind of woman do you take me for? A low life? And Churchill said, madam, we've already established that. Now we're just haggling about the price. I mean, it's funny. It really is. I laughed really hard when I heard that. But I think so often we don't realize that when it comes to discipleship, 
when it comes to walking in the way of wisdom, if you still have a price tag that you would be willing to pay in order to turn from who Christ is and what he's done from your life, then I can promise you the enemy's going to pay it. The enemy's going to do everything that he possibly can to lure you away from Jesus and from his cross. And I think the reminder when we look at the life of Solomon is this, is that we have to sell out 100% to Jesus and to his call on our life so that we are incorruptible as it relates to this area of compromise. What is the cost of compromise? Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Now, I don't want to just be Mr. Negative up here today. I recognize some of us may be walking in compromise. And the good news is simply this. Jesus still forgives. Jesus still transforms. Jesus still washes and purifies and renews. Jesus still provides the second and third and fourth and a hundredth chance. And I see so many faces here in this room this morning. I know your backstory. You are a living testimony to the fact that there is still a God in heaven who offers multiple chances over our lives, who still brings restoration, who still breaches down to a slimy pit and pulls us up and sets our feet upon a solid rock. There is still a God in heaven who is available when we turn our hearts towards him and say, Lord, I don't want to live this compromised lifestyle anymore. I want to be wholeheartedly after you, right? I don't want to make the same mistakes that Solomon made. So we've looked at Solomon, the solo man. You guys tracked with the isolation part. And then we looked at Solomon, the solo man. And we talked about the cost of compromise. And the last and final uh, idea that I'd like to bring up here, and I also came up with this one, which is it's so cheesy, right? But it's this idea of Solomon, the solemn man, right? Solomon, the solemn man. And you guys that have heard me preach before, you know that this being the third point, when I say that I'm closing, it doesn't really mean anything, right? Okay? Okay, good. Um, but I, I'm going to try to wrap this up, right? So this would be the cost of cynicism, the cost of cynicism. So we talked about the cost of isolation. We talked about the cost of uh, compromise, this is the cost of cynicism. Now, those of you that have read through the Old Testament, uh, you know at some point Solomon is credited with writing the book of Ecclesiastes, right? So he writes Proverbs, but he also writes Ecclesiastes. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, I mean, put on your seatbelt because it is not the easiest uh, read in the world, and it is, you know, it's an eye-opener, all right? Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2 is how Solomon starts off this letter, and he says this, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you're like, and? And it doesn't get much better from there, right? I mean, that's kind of the message of Ecclesiastes, and if we had a message on meaninglessness, you know, you would walk out if you're feeling really spiritually fulfilled, wouldn't you, right? Of course you wouldn't. Um, and I look at this idea of Solomon, the solemn man, and solemn, the word solemn in English means characterized by a deep sincerity, okay? Doing something purposefully with serious thought and reflection, all right? So if someone's solemn, it's someone who's reflective, someone who's contemplative, and as a result of that uh, deliberation, they have made a, uh, a, a step with purpose, okay? With serious thought and reflection. Now, when you read through the book of uh, 1 Kings and in Chronicles, you're going to find out that Solomon had some powerful encounters with God early in his life. In fact, one night he has this dream, and in the dream, God asks him for well, one request that he would ask of him, and Solomon 
responds and says, I'm asking for wisdom. God releases that and then says, and because you've asked for wisdom, I will also give you all these other things as well, right? Which is how Solomon became the wisest person that we've ever known. And it's interesting when you read Solomon's prayers and responses and pronouncements after these encounters with God, I would say it's the exact opposite of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, he's meaninglessness, meaninglessness, everything has no purpose, I'm confused, life doesn't make sense, I've tried it all, there's no, there's no, there's no overarching purpose anymore, my life is a disaster, my life is falling to pieces. But if you push the rewind button and you go back to these first moments with God, I think it's almost like he's saying meaningful, meaningful when he responds. I mean, one of the most famous verses during the last 18 months has been 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And it's like Solomon was having some of these powerful revelations and encounters of, of what it looks like to experience God. But at some point he became cynical, right? And you say, well, what do you mean by cynical? Well, I look at this idea of cynicism and it's, manifesting a critical or sarcastic spirit or even just a simple stubbornness to no longer be obedient to this tender voice of God in your life, right? And it's really easy for any of us uh, to get there. And it basically looks like a loss of wonder, a loss of the sense of majesty, a loss of the sense of appreciation. You know, when you first give your life to Christ, it's kind of easier, can I use that terminology, to engage in God's presence. You walk into church and it's like you just, you just overflow with God's love. And then you walk outside and people are asking you, what happened to you? Oh, Jesus changed my life. And it's just like there's this overflow. There's this appreciation for what God's done inside of you. There's this, there's this sense of awe. There's this sense of wonder. It's really, really, I mean, it's easier when you first come to know Jesus to manifest his love. And then life starts to happen, right? And as life starts to happen, it's really easy to get hurt. I don't know about for you, but I can tell you standing before you today that I've been hurt in church on multiple occasions. I've been hurt in ministry far too many times than I would care um, to experience. And every time that happens, you have a choice and a deliberation to make. And it simply goes like this. Are you going to become a cynic or are you going to press, even, press in even harder? to Christ and to his purposes, right? And we look at what happens here, and I look at Solomon, and because of the first two, solo man and solo man, which sounds identical, but the idea of isolation and compromise, he became a cynic. So that by the end of his life, it's meaningless, it's purposeful, it's purposelessness, there's no more direction, there's no more, what happened to you, Solomon? You were talking about God's glory, you were experiencing, you were talking about national revival, you were talking about leading, living your life in such a way that other people would be blessed through your kingdom and through your reign, and now at the end of your life, ah, it doesn't make any sense anymore. This um, summer, I guess it was July, I already told you about, you know, driving around through the Mara and you see animals everywhere and most of the drivers have like little radios in their vehicle so that you can stay in touch with other vehicles because and some seasons particularly during covid you may not see another vehicle for hours and i mean it's hundreds and hundreds of square miles of just rolling savanna and hills and sagebrush and um, trees and forests and it's really easy to get lost and get stuck and it's also easy to miss an animal because you're driving and you just may not notice them and so the call comes over the radio bailey and i are in the vehicle with two people who've never been to africa before and the uh, call comes over there is a male lion at such and such a location the sun's starting to go down and so our driver hits the accelerator we're flying we're trying to get to this site before this before dark so that you can actually see him 
and we pull up on this male lion. Now, if you've seen a male lion before, in the first service, I said they were about uh, 450 kg, which is not true. It's actually about 450 pounds. I always get the kg and the pounds mixed up, right? But I never told a story that God couldn't do, all right? Let's just keep that for the record, all right? So you have this male lion, 450 pounds. He's like from us to the front row, and he starts to stretch as we pull up, and he yawns, and he looks up at the sky, and then you see this little, you know, uh, reverberation right here in his jugular, and he goes, and I'm like, oh, I think he might roar. This would be amazing. Now, the couple that are with us, they had seen lions in a zoo. If you've ever been to see a lion in a zoo, you know, there's the fence around it, and there's this big lion, and he's usually so fat he can hardly stand up because he's been, you know, spoon-fed for most of his life, and so he's just there, and you're like, boring, like little kitty, can't really do anything. But when you see a lion in the wild and Particularly when you start to hear him roar, oh, it is a completely different experience. And so this guy's stretching, and then it, it, it kind of comes in waves. And so it starts off kind of quieter, and then it kind of amps up the, uh, you know, the intensity, and then it's, and they say that you can hear a male lion roaring from 10 miles away. Now that is a lot of distance. Now imagine he is 15 feet from your vehicle. And as he starts to roar, and this couple who have never seen this lion before, they, I mean, the hair on my arms is standing straight up and down at this point because literally the vehicle is shaking. Literally, you can feel every single one of these sound vibrations coming into your body. And it's going on for like a minute. And when that experience was over, none of us went, oh, that was so boring. We... I mean, we looked at each other. My wife had tears pouring down her face. It was almost a spiritual experience because you are face-to-face with something that's majestic. They don't call him the king of the, lion, king of the jungle for nothing. You say, what's the point? Well, I correlate back, that back to the presence of God. And I think what we've done so often in the church is we've made Jesus our buddy-buddy. We've made Jesus the giant teddy bear, and he's the, you know, the Easter bunny, and we give him a hug, and I've got some boo-boos. Jesus, give me a hug, right? And I'm not here to negate the fact that Jesus is full of love, and he should be our friend, and that is indeed the goal of walking with Christ. But at some point, Jesus can't just remain your teddy bear. Jesus must be placed back upon the throne in your life as the King of kings and the Lord of Lords, and you have to comprehend and understand that he is still holy, he's still majestic, he's still glorious. And when the king of Judah, the lion of Judah, when he roars and when he thunders, Scripture tells us that entire nations shake and tremble. And when you begin to grasp and understand that, I promise you, you will no longer be a cynic. Quite to the contrary, you'll be a worshiper. A worshiper. I've used this analogy at least one other time here at FC, but when I think about being a worshiper, man, I always think about being, church, being in church in Maasai land. And if you've watched the Maasai on TV, you've seen them with their spears and the men, and they're jumping up and down, and the women do the African undulation, and when you walk into church on a Sunday morning, and here are these grown Maasai warriors who you know some of them have killed lions with their bare hands, and there's the women, and they're jumping, in honor of Christ, and you have the women, it's very difficult not to be moved by the reality of the holiness and presence of a God who's not just powerful in Tulsa, Oklahoma at Foundations Church on a Sunday morning in mid-October, 
but he's powerful and he's glorious on the plains of Africa where the lions still roar and the Maasai warriors still fall on their face and say, Jesus, you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And my appeal and my petition today before the Lord would be this, that we don't just walk out of service today and go, hey, yeah, high five, another great service, great word, ooh, wow, let's go up for lunch. But that we would recover a sense of the holiness and majesty of God that says, I was in the presence of someone holy. I was in the presence of a king. I was in the presence of one whose presence itself is better than my very life. I was in the presence of one so holy and so wonderful that it moved me to worship. And I think that when we recover that sense, of God's majesty and God's awe and God's glory, that's when our lives become so attractive to a world around us that says, wow, these Christ followers, they really manifest this presence of Christ. And so Solomon looks to close this out today with Proverbs 4.23, and he gives us three recommendations. And he tells us here, in verses uh, 23 through 27, above all else, guard your heart, For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. Your relationships are going to flow out of it. Your business is going to flow out of it. Everything you do flows out of the condition of your heart, right? So Solomon, how do we do that? How do we implement this practically? And he's going to tell us here, keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left and keep your foot from evil. And I think I put in your notes here this idea of just personal responsibility, right? And Solomon just identifies the mouth, the eyes, the feet. I mean, you could preach a whole message on that right there. But just this idea of what kind of things are coming out of your mouth. Because Jesus said, out of the excess of your heart, your mouth speaks. So if you want to know what the condition of your heart, identify and analyze what's coming out of here. Are you gossiping? Are you criticizing? Are you grumbling? Are you, you know, making snide remarks? That's probably revealing something of what's in your Are you sarcastic? Are you cynic? There's probably a condition. It's a mirror. It's reflecting. And Solomon's saying, be deliberate to guard this. Because if you guard this, you're guarding this. Right? And then he says, you know, your eyes, what are you looking at? David said in Psalms, I'll set no evil thing before my eyes. What are we watching? Because what you watch, what you behold is who you become. It's it's going to affect the condition of your heart. If you're deliberate to to behold the glory and majesty of God, that's when we are transformed into his image, right? And then your feet, that speaks of the purpose that God's called you to, but it also speaks of uh, relationships in, in scripture. And so who are the people in your life? What's the purpose God's called you to? Are you living that out? Are you being deliberate and intentional to connect with other people that can help you walk out the purpose? I mean, the, all of this, this is all wisdom. This is all what discipleship looks like. This is all what it looks like of following Jesus as the personification and embodiment of God's wisdom. And so this morning, I present you, Jesus, God's wisdom for your life. You say, Steve, I don't know what to do tomorrow. I have decisions to make. My family's falling apart. I'm having, I present you, Jesus, the wisdom of God. Steve, there's so many issues that are coming up. I I present to you, Jesus, the wisdom of God. The more you get to know Jesus, the more his wisdom will be evident in and through your lives. Would you pray with me this morning? Oh, Father, we love you. My simple prayer today is that we would recover a sense of your holiness and your majesty in our lives. 
Lord, I'm thankful that you are my friend. I'm thankful that you are there in every moment of my life, but I'm also grateful that you are so much higher and greater and more glorious, that you are a holy God. And I pray for all of my friends, my brothers, my sisters here in this building today. I pray for those watching online. I pray that we would recover a sense of your holiness and of your presence and of your majesty. And that, Lord, that would transform the way that we do life. That would transform the, uh, our understanding of the cost of discipleship. And that we would remember that it's far more costly not to be a disciple than it is to be a disciple. And Lord, we thank you for your word today. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you're here today and you'd say, Steve, you know, I am um, not where I need to be in my walk with Jesus. I'm so grateful today that he's here to redeem and restore. If you are not where you need to be or you've never experienced Jesus as the wisdom of God and transforming your life, would you just slip up your hand? I wanna pray for you really quickly. Is there anybody here today that you'd say, man, I, I need a fresh encounter or I need to know Jesus for the first time or rededicate my life to him? Lord, we thank you. We, we bless your name. And Lord, we, we, uh, we just close this service out today and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Maasai land today. We pray for our brothers and sisters in, in Kualale. We lift up those in Sekanani. We pray for those in Olarewang and Talak and Mararianda. Lord, we pray for those in Mountaintop. We lift up our brothers and sisters. Lord, these new churches going in in Inkaintek and in, in Kuroto. Lord, we pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit across Kenya, that, Lord, you would be made famous in everything that's said and done. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the exact same thing right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma at Foundations Church, that your name would be the desire and renown of each of our lives as we embrace this decision to be your disciple, to be your follower, to take up our cross and to know you personally. We thank you for this. In your name we pray and all God's people said. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.